The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report, and our special guest for the hour, Perth Toll. This conversation is going to be primarily around emerging markets, and we'll talk on the current environment here. But Perth, for those who are not familiar with your background, just set the stage as far as who you are, how you got involved in markets, and what you're doing now. Yeah, thanks for having me, Michael. So um, I basically, I grew up in both China and the United States. I was born in Beijing. I came to the U.S. around age nine, and I went back and forth. Between the two countries. After college, I went and lived in Hong Kong for about a year. And that's where I first saw the difference that freedom made in my life, as well as in the markets in these various places. So when I came back from Hong Kong to the United States, I worked at Fidelity for 10 years as a financial advisor in the LA and Houston markets. And in these markets, I had a lot of clients who also did not want to invest in their home countries. For example, I had a Russian client who said, I, you know, I don't want to invest in Russia because it would be like funding terrorism. So I saw that in emerging markets, you know, in, in most of these funds, there were a lot, there was a lot of autocracy exposure, whether it be China, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, or Turkey. So I created a way basically for investors who wanted emerging markets exposure without those autocracies and also an overweight to the freer economies. So we do freedom-weighted emerging markets. And um, instead of having about 40% in autocracies like you get in the uh, market cap weighted products, we have no China, no Russia, no Saudi Arabia and so forth. And in addition, the weightings are based on freedom levels in these countries. So the higher freedom countries actually get a higher weight. So that's what we do now, which is freedom weighted emerging markets. Okay, so there's several things I want you to define because I think it's important to just make sure everyone has a level playing field. So First of all, define autocracy. When you say countries that have autocratic rule, just explain what that means for the audience. Yeah. So, you know, we're looking at countries like China, Russia, and Saudi Arabia are the biggest three that I think of in the emerging markets universe that I would call autocracies. And basically, these are just countries where one person makes a lot of the decisions and there's not a lot of feedback loops on the ground for other opinions or any kind of democratic process. 
there may be elections, but the elections are typically kind of a, you know, they're, they're sham elections or they're not really legitimate elections. They're, you know, like we had in Russia. So, and, and now sadly in Hong Kong. So that's, that's how I define kind of autocracy. Now, now keep in mind that I'm using third party quantitative data. So I'm not the one making these definitions that we do exclude these countries that I'm calling autocracies, but it's mostly based on freedom data. So it's the level of freedom, not the level of autocracy that determines the weights in our in our products. Right, because obviously you can have a beneficial or benevolent government that's an autocracy, although you could yes. argue that that is hard to have from an incentive perspective, right? Because if you're running the country and you pretty much want that power and control and power is very good at corrupting people. But okay, <laughs> so let, let, let's keep going on definition. So autocracy, okay, now, Freedom is a term that's used a hell of a lot. And I don't believe that there's ever a truly free nation, right? There's degrees of freedom. Talk about how you define freedom and then how that's quantitatively done by some of these third parties that you mentioned. Yeah, I think you just brought up two really good points. I'm going to hit back on the autocracy thing for just one second there. You're right. There could be benevolent autocracies and benevolent monarchies and so forth. And we saw that in Hong Kong in the recent past until like a few years ago. So now that benevolence has left the autocracy part of, of the equation. So now we're seeing a, a less benevolent autocracy there that is more like China than before. So, um, so you're right. It's not about the type of government. It's about like freedom is the end goal. It's not that, you know, non-autocracy is the end goal. But yeah, the incentive structures there do not help maintain freedom, I guess. And then going back to how to define freedom, and you're absolutely right there as well and make a really good point that there is no 100% free market, just like there's no 100% oppressive market. It's all degrees of freedom or oppression. And even in the United States, you know, we don't have 100% freedom and far from it. And we just happen to be like the least worst, right, of, you know, some of these countries. So we define freedom as, I put it in three buckets, basically civil freedoms, political freedoms, and economic freedoms. And our data providers split that into two buckets. So they put civil and political freedoms together and call it personal freedom and then economic freedom. And they use 79 different variables that encompass both personal and economic freedoms. So these are things like terrorism, trafficking, torture, women's freedoms, rule of law, due process, civil procedure, criminal procedure, freedom of speech, freedom of media, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, freedom of the press, and so forth. And then your economic freedoms like rule of law, business practices and regulations, taxation, freedom to trade internationally, soundness and monetary policy. So these are the things that go into the score that we use for each country, which then derive our country weights. I'm going to assume that rule of law is of those 79, probably from an investment return perspective in the top 10 in terms of most important things for countries, right? Because you've got you know, countries and markets in, in the Middle East, I'm sure, that certainly don't have the the civil freedoms and liberties that you would hope they would, but they might have stronger rule of law than maybe a country like China. Talk through that a little bit, because I think rule of law is often underappreciated as the reason for why somebody can be comfortable putting money to work overseas. Yep, that's another really good point. So so rule of law is actually the one of the biggest factors in this in this process. There's nine sub variables that they use for rule of law, which is, you know, then makes it like nine out of the 79, which is kind of large. It does overlap between personal and economic freedom. So 
the reason why rule of law is important in investing is that you want to have the certainty of knowing that your contracts are going to be honored. That if something, you know, happens, like you have shareholder rights, things like that. So, so, you know, with, without rule of law, without private property rights or intellectual property rights, there's no way to kind of protect the fruit of your labor, so to speak. So, you know, there's less incentive to then innovate and, you know, grow because there's no protection on or incentive to, you know, to do so. So rule of law is absolutely one of the most important ones. Our data providers like to say that all freedoms are important, that they work together like the parts of an automobile. So you can't have a steering wheel without a transmission and the car still won't run. But you could argue that rule of law is one of the more important parts of that automobile. So I agree with that completely. Yeah. And I said, I remember when I was reading the the Age of Turbulence by Greenspan, there was a quite a bit of discussion Greenspan had around that very point, that that's why U.S. capital markets are as large as they are. It has less to do with democracy and less to do with economic activity and more to do with confidence, right? That that the rule of law will be there so that there are protections, you know, and, and rights are defended from, from outside capital that goes into the U.S. So I think that's kind of an interesting point to make. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the lead lag report. And now, back to our discussion. The U.S. is about number 18 out of 162 countries that they that our data providers score. You can use other data providers as well. There's, you know, Freedom House. There's Heritage. Uh, there's all kinds of data on, on this type of thing. And you can also look at corruption or, you know, nation state, like other factors like you know, legitimacy of certain political processes and things like that. So yeah, the U.S. actually doesn't score at the top, even in developed markets. And in yeah. fact, their score has been declining. Our score has been declining for several years. Now, that being said, we are still, like I said, the the best of the worst, so, so to speak. And, you know, it's all relative. And I think that with the current events going on, a lot of these countries that have shown recent declines, but that have high absolute levels of freedom are actually going to see possibly some some increasing freedom levels going forward, relatively speaking, just because the the freedom levels in the less free countries are declining a little faster right now. So 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 yeah, I mean like uh, Norway, Australia, Singapore have historically been higher, but we've seen obviously a lot of issues in some of these countries that I just mentioned. So um, so relatively speaking, we'll see. And Canada usually is on par, but slightly higher. So we've seen a lot of issues in Canada and Australia as far as personal freedoms go uh, uh, during COVID. Um, nothing close to what we see in, in the emerging markets, of course. Yeah, That's why yeah, actually yeah. we did this in the emerging markets first, because in the emerging markets, you see a huge discrepancy between freedom levels that is much larger than what you see in the developed markets. And so we found that, you know, the alpha is to be found in the emerging market space in a freedom-weighted type of strategy versus developed market. Now, we do have a lot of 
people requesting that we do develop markets as well. I think that's because it's a more popular like investment option. And, you know, everybody has developed market allocations, whereas not everybody has emerging market. So I think we do get a lot of requests for that for that reason. But I do still believe that for this strategy, the higher alpha is is to be found in emerging markets. If you want like a, a running scorecard for freedom in a certain space. And we have seen a very stark outperformance in the emerging market space. If you compare us with, say, EEM or IEMG or VWO. So I think we, we have seen that kind of play out the thesis in emerging markets, but in developed markets, it would be interesting. I haven't done the back test to see, you know, if there would be outperformance there as well. But I would suspect that it would be there, but to a lesser degree, because the freedom levels in developed markets are a little more homogenous, you know, but there but there are differences. So yeah, there probably would be a smaller like outperformance over time, but there still would be, I believe, an outperformance. I'm curious if there's, um, and I'm going to assume the answer is yes, if there's a link between economic freedom and a nation's wealth gap, right, in terms of the differential between very Mm. wealth and everyone else. And, and, And I say that only because, you know, my assumption would be that the more economic freedom there is, the more it's level playing field in terms of conditions and everyone having kind of a fair shot. Whereas, in more autocratic, less economic free countries, you're going to have much more concentration of wealth. Talk through that a little bit, because I think that's an interesting way of of thinking about this. Yeah, so that is a really good point. Thank you for bringing that up. So we look at the equality of opportunity and not the equality of outcomes. So the equality of outcomes is not what we want to focus on. It's the equality of opportunity. Everybody should have equal opportunity to innovate, to succeed. And, you know, everybody has different things to contribute to the world. And so, you know, each individual should have equal rights or opportunity. And so that's what we look for in the scoring. And as far as the outcomes, there are a lot of beneficial outcomes to freedom, including there is actually a little less inequality in certain aspects, like gender inequality. There's less gender inequality in freer countries. There's higher life expectancy, lower infant mortality, higher GDP growth, higher income per capita, lower poverty rates. So you actually see there's a lot of, there can be a lot of differences in outcomes as far as poverty or wealth, but you see the lowest quartile of income. So the, the poorest people in the freer countries are much richer than the poorest people in the unfree countries. So there is inequality in the end, yes, but I would argue that there's a lot less, you know, inequality in in that even the poorest people in the richest countries are faring much better than, you know, some of the less poor people in in the unfree ones. So you mentioned the, um, the word corruption, and I'm trying to think through how do you quantitatively determine if a country is more corrupt than than another. Talk about how some of these variables are measured in terms of how you can actually create a score. And I understand this is third party, but in your own due diligence and thinking about how to how to come up with a an index and approach around this, how do you quantify some of this stuff? Yeah, so I actually before I started using our data set that that we use um, from these third parties which we use Cato and Fraser. So then um, these guys are you know, world leaders in freedom econometrics. But before I started using this data set, I actually created my own what's called a human rights quotient. And it was a way of 
quantifying qualified human freedom metrics. Because at that time, I thought about this a long time ago, um, way before I actually started the company. And so at that time, there was no kind of quantitative measure of human freedom. There was economic freedom. But I, I define human freedom as the combination of personal and economic freedom. So, you know, you need to have both, right? You can't be half free. So, you know, I believe these freedoms are interconnected. And so I created this, this way of, of quantifying human freedoms, including economic freedoms. And it was basically used using an ordinal scale system. So let's say that, you know, there's a report for journalist kill- killings in, you know, any given year in a country, right? If there's between one and five journalist killings, we give it a score of five. Between five and 10, we give it a score of four. Between 10 and 15, we give it a score of three and so on and so forth. And that's really how we did it. So when I actually left Fidelity, um, I was home with my child. And when, when she got big enough to go to school, that's when I went full time on this. And then that's the time that when I went to score the countries using my system, I went to the economic freedom kind of data set website. And I saw that they had now a thing called the human freedom index and data set. And I was like, what is this? So I, so I called my contact there and I was like, Fred, what is this? And we, we compared notes. And at the time I had a provisional patent on my system of quantifying human freedoms. And uh, I, I shared that with, with Fred and Fred shared with me their system. And it was almost identical because of that. And because I wanted full third party objectivity where none of my subjective opinions mattered at all. I asked Fred if I could use their system and he said yes. And so I'm thrilled about that. And I you know, love that I have zero subjective opinion or input into the scoring system. And you know, we work completely independently. And, and likewise, they have zero input into or influence into our scoring or our um, turning the scores into country weights. So because of that, I actually... All I know is, you know, the data sources they use, um, they don't actually currently measure corruption because corruption is almost perfectly negatively correlated with freedom. So the higher the freedom, the lower the corruption level. But if you if you're curious about that, there is a um, data source called the Transparency International. And that's all they measure is corruption. So they have that data out there. I don't know how I don't know their process or their methodology, but I believe it's pretty, pretty clear if you if you look into it. Let's talk about backtesting for for a few minutes here because I'm a huge fan of backtesting, even though a lot of people will argue that backtesting really doesn't work. Although those people that say that seem to also believe in buy and hold, which I always make a point is a backtest with one trade, right? Everything in markets is a backtest. Now, the the dilemma with backtesting as a methodology is that you have to be always careful about the causation changing, right? Of whatever it is that you're testing. So yeah. In my world, for example, I often talk about lumber and gold, utilities, right? And the causation in particular for lumber as a leading indicator, even though it hasn't really worked so far this year, obviously, is that when lumber is weak, it tends to precede housing weakness. That tends to precede economic recessions, contractions, risk-off periods. And that's because the average home has about 16,000 board feet of lumber. That causation is unlikely to change anytime soon. Now, because different countries obviously will have different turnovers of political leaders, I'm going to assume there's a bit of a challenge in terms of thinking about how to backtest an approach that's based on freedom metrics, which might alter based on who's in power. And I've heard you first talk about the example of Poland. I I want you to talk about that for a little bit, because I think that I'm going to assume makes it much more dynamic in terms of how to think about waiting towards a particular country than, than not. 
Yeah, Poland is a really interesting case. And right now, Chile is a case that I, I think is similar to what we saw in Poland in the past several years, where there is kind of a change in the government and um, people are concerned. So Poland, uh, back in 2016 or so, they elected a far right-wing government, the PIS government. And when we were at these freedom meetings, I do go to some of these freedom meetings with the econometricians that have, you know, they, they use like 100 think tanks around the world. And some of these think tanks, they all get together annually. And when were those meetings are in the United States, I, I t- try to go. And that year I was there with the Poland delegate and the Poland delegate told me, hey, we're, we're electing this sort of crazy um, government. They're going to get constitutional majority and you're going to see some declines in freedoms like women's freedoms and judicial independence and so forth. But that won't be affected uh, or it won't be shown, you know, it won't show up in the markets for a couple years. So it's going to take time for those policies to affect markets. And it happened just as he said in 2017, Poland was still the best performing emerging market and number one in our index. Our index was incepted in 2017 in its current form uh, in our fund incepted in 2019. And then in 2018, Poland dropped to number four based on their freedom score. So by then you had seen some erosion of judicial independence, of women's freedoms and so forth. And it was affected, you know, it was reflected in the scores. And so then it was reflected in our weights and they haven't gone up from number four since. So with a country like Poland, where there are some, you know, relatively speaking, again, strong institutions, there is some rule of law, pretty good, you know, relatively speaking, and um, there, there are um, good individual protections and, and there are, there's a good electoral process. Th- there can be blips like this. And just like in the United States, we can have blips like this, where maybe a more extreme or less beneficial government gets into power. But there are processes and checks and balances to keep that from, you know, going too far out of control, hopefully. Uh, Right now, we're seeing the same thing in Chile. A government has gotten into power that may be bad for certain economic freedoms. And there's a lot of concern in our, you know, freedom circles about that. But you can see they're still the top performing market this year, mostly because of their commodities um, exposure. So... So, you know, there's so much noise in backtesting, not only electoral processes and, and who, who's in power, but also other things like Russia invading Ukraine. And now commodities prices are soaring. And so you see Chile being the, actually a top holding in our, in our fund right now because of market movement, not because of their freedom score. So, yeah, I think that, you know, with backtesting, you have to be very careful because there's just so much noise. And, you know, it's very difficult to, to pinpoint what, is correlation versus causation. The thing that probably most inspired me to to do this because I'm a product of the one-child policy and I saw how it affected my generation in China and it changed the culture of the generation and that's not something that I see reversing anytime soon. Um, I had a a friend in Shanghai when I was uh, in Hong Kong that, you know, we called Maggie that she had no birth certificate, no school records, doesn't exist on paper because she was born the second child and her parents registered her brother for school and for existence. And she was just like me in any other way. And I realized that that could have been me. So, so this is one of the, the issues that I, I'm most concerned about. And, you know, as we see, China now has the world's worst demographics in the world. Um, I do want to highlight, you know, just the last couple of days with this zero COVID policy, we've seen some of these police dressed up in 
these white suits going from house to house and dragging people into quarantine centers. <laughs> so the new rule in some parts is that uh, if anyone in your compound or your building, everybody in China lives in these kind of like apartment compounds, right? So if anyone in your compound or your apartment complex gets tested positive, like one person, the entire compound has to go quarantine to a, a government quarantine center. You see, I saw this video circulating last night of these police in these white suits at this door. And there's the couple inside, the husband and wife. And, and the police is saying, you have to come with us or this will affect three generations of your family and it, it'll be in your record. And the man says, oh, well, we're the last generation, so thank you, and closes the door. So this was like a very hilarious kind of a video because of the way that he said it. But also you see this kind of very, uh, very, it's a, it's, a, it's a way of protest that people in China are doing, similar to what they did last year with a, with a lie down protest. If you guys are familiar with that, they just decided, well, this, we're, we're not going to work like hamsters anymore. We're just going to lie flat and do nothing. And that was like a big thing with, with, with the youth in China, the lie flat movement. Um, and now we see this unusual type of protest where we're not going to have children <laughs> because we don't want our children to now be oppressed by this government and get dragged to, you know, quarantine or whatever, uh, whatever other form of, of oppression are, are going to be out there. So, so that really hit a nerve with the Chinese people as kind of sort of protest. And then uh, the hashtag for like last generation got censored on, you know, uh, WeChat and all these other Chinese platforms, social platforms. So, so that's kind of a, a quick anecdote from last night of, you know, what's going on with the birth rate. Um, China also last year, as you guys all know, probably turned all the online education companies, which were very profitable, into nonprofits overnight. And these companies like TAL and EDU, I encourage all our listeners to look up what happened with TAL and EDU. Just look up the one-year return and you can see exactly the day that the government came out and said this. It was a Friday night, stroke of a pin. They said all the online education companies are now nonprofits. So these very profitable companies lost all their shareholder value overnight. Um, and the reason why they did that is to decrease the cost of childbirth. Why are people not having children? Because the one-child policy changed the culture of my whole generation. And so now the following generation is similar and nobody wants to have more than one child. And when they went to two child, it didn't help. And then went to three child. Is the CCP weaker than they claim to be? They've always been weaker than they claim to be. And that's why they have to, to show these strengths in this way. And it's, it's very uh, obvious, I think, to the outside observer and to the people on the ground in China, though they can't say it. So, yes, I do believe that the CCP is, by, by going from one child to two child to three child policy, is saying, look, we, you know, we had no business controlling how many children people can have. Like, it didn't work. And we're just going to go from one to two to three because really, we deep down somewhere know that it is the right thing to do to just let people have as many children as they want, but we can't admit it. So we're going to go to three. <laughs> so, um, so, so that's, yeah, I, I agree with you there on that. Um, as far as the prospect of birth rates going up, I mean, judging from the anecdote from last night and just from statistics, uh, that looks very bleak at the moment. And, I, and, and also they have very poor immigration policies. 
they have poor freedom of movement inside or outside, in, into or out of the country. So I think that this does not look good. So demographics in China are the worst in the world, and I believe it will stay, stay that way for a while. I will actually address the um, abortion issue that has come up with several CIOs last week have emailed me and said, hey, you know, do you guys measure this? We actually don't. So we, we have no measure for that currently. Our women's freedom metrics are women's freedom of movement, women's rights to children after divorce, women's rights to inheritance, FGM, and there's one other one that I'm, I'm leaving off. Uh, but but yeah, there's, there's no uh, metric for that. But for people who are interested in, you know, what I just talked about, the one child policy and, and how that particular policy led to a lot of forced abortions, infanticides, and things that led to now 30 million missing women in China. The movie that I would recommend is called One Child Nation. And this, you know, I thought I knew a lot about this until I saw this movie and it blew my mind. So One Child Nation, I believe it's free on Amazon Prime, or maybe it's not free, but it's on Amazon Prime. I would highly recommend for that. So we have about 19% of Taiwan and the benchmarks have about 16%. We have a cap on securities. So the biggest security in Taiwan is Taiwan Semiconductor. We have about 7% and it's the same in EEM and uh, VWO. So they have about 7%. So, so it's very similar as far as the Taiwan exposure. The difference there is we believe that invasion risk, it mostly or any you know autocracy risk, lies with the autocracy. So the bigger risk if China were to invade Taiwan, is China and not Taiwan. So I would be more concerned about having 30% in China in these market cap weighted products than having 16% or 19% in Taiwan. As we saw with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Russia is the market that got decimated. Now, Ukraine, obviously too small to, to see what would happen there, but, but the, the autocracy is where the risk lies. So that's that's the position that we take with that. And the way we manage that risk is we have zero allocation to China. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. I'm curious if there's a relationship between some of these countries that are quote unquote freer and the sector makeup of their local stock markets, right? So my initial thinking here would be that the less free, the more those markets might be dominated by state-owned enterprises, which tend to be more natural resource and maybe the banking system. Talk about if you've had any sort of done any work on the connection between sector weightings and how free a country is. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. So actually, um, I think somebody mentioned in the comments to your um, to your post about this particular spaces that commodities are you know part of the problem here. What we see is in freer countries, 
the the countries with natural resources are less dependent on that particular natural resource as the only source of revenue. So in the unfree markets, you see especially Saudi Arabia and Russia, there's a lot of dependence on one natural resource and that's like all they have. Whereas in the freer markets like Taiwan that have like no natural resources, you know, they still have very well-performing stock markets, very well-performing economies, even without natural resources. And so it's natural resources, you know, and, and commodities are not the only, I guess, source of growth or innovation or progress um, in freer markets because they have the freedom to innovate in other ways. Whereas some of these countries that make the natural resource like their their only revenue driver and it becomes like this way of doling out distributing wealth versus creating wealth, I guess, in these countries. So we do see a lot of uh, less natural resource dependence or less commodities dependence, I should say, in these freer emerging markets. Now, we do have some emerging markets that are pretty free, like Chile, that have a lot of commodities that make up a, a huge part of their economy. So that doesn't change. But the difference there is that they have the freedom to put their company's interests first and to pivot if if they need to. So they don't have to answer to the state first. They can answer to their own shareholders and make pivots as needed, even though they have exposure maybe to some of these <clears throat> less free markets. So for example, in Chile, one of our biggest holdings is SQM. And this is a mining company um, that previously mined mostly copper. And then when China had their kind of, uh, there was a time when China was providing a lot of subsidies for self-driving electronic vehicles. And there was a huge need for the batteries for lithium. And so SQM pivoted from mostly copper to mostly lithium um, to kind of meet that demand in, in China. And that's a very, you know, we don't have any exposure directly to China, but we do have that indirect trade exposure. And we actually believe that's good. So we, you know, the more free trade, the better in a country, basically. So we just don't want that direct autocracy exposure where the government can say overnight, oh, you're a nonprofit now or something like that. These are companies that can put their own interests first and not not the state. As far as state-owned enterprises, that's a really interesting thing right now because we're seeing the the crash in mostly the China market. And these are not state-owned companies that uh, have crashed. And these are our very familiar holdings like Tencent, Alibaba, and so forth. And we're seeing from that that there is really no independent company in some of these unfree markets, especially China. So in China, you know, there's there's no non-state-owned entity, really, even if it's not technically an SOE. Um, we do actually exclude SOEs from our security holdings just to bring the economic freedom theme all the way through. But we think that is secondary to first having the freedom in place. So without the, you know, you know, individual freedoms, rule of law, stronger institutions, you know, there there really is no independence. Um, there's no private company in some of these countries. So um, in fact, I, I'm sure most of our listeners are aware that every company in China is required to have a, a CCP cell within their company. So somebody from the CCP has to be part of their company management. So so that that is not the level of independence that, that we want. Even excluding state-owned enterprises, I don't believe would would capture some of that risk. So I think it's interesting because the the problem that I think we face as people who are creating strategies is that all that sounds good on freedom, and most people would intellectually agree with it. But at the end of the day, nothing matters more than a chart, 
right? Nothing matters more than performance. I, I always go back to this point yeah. that, right, that momentum chasing and FOMO is far more powerful than anybody's ideals and, and, and morals. How does everything you just said about sort of the less freedom, the more commodity sense of how does that play into the current environment in terms of fund flows? Because there's obviously been some real strength in the commodity space, a lot of concerns about scarcity and and that being a form of cost push inflation for a while. It seems to me that investors are so nervous about higher raw material prices that they're almost forced to go into countries that are not free. Yeah, no, I actually I would disagree with. Well, yeah, I, I can see that that being a uh, temptation to like invest in the unfree markets because they have oil or, so, or whatever. But there are more innovations in countries that are oil producing that are more free as well. So there, there's not a monopoly on that. And you see countries like Chile that have a lot of other commodities that uh, are benefiting from this kind of commodities uh, rally as well. You know, what we try to do is be kind of a running scorecard for freedom. Because as I mentioned, there are a lot of benefits to freedom. And like you said, they're very nebulous. You know, things like, you know, less gender inequality, higher, you know, life expectancy and so forth. These things are, are very nebulous and hard to hard to visualize. So we try to be a running scorecard for the freer countries and the emerging market space. And if you look at our returns, you know, if you chart FRDM versus EEM, so for example, you know, whether you're looking at one year, you know, or since inception, it, the outperformance is quite stark. So uh, I don't believe that that will, you know, be the case all the time. So this is definitely not guaranteed of a future continued outperformance, especially to this degree. We've had some very, very extreme events um, like COVID and this war. So um, I think that that is not going to continue to this degree. But, you know, we always, our thesis was always that freer markets, that they would grow more sustainably, that they recover faster from drawdowns and that they use their capital more efficiently, whether it's human capital or whether it's you know economic capital. So there's less capital flight and capital destruction. We saw this play out in COVID, in the, especially the second point with you know, higher or, or faster recovery. So the second half of 2020 is when you start to see the freer markets really shine because they, they outperformed you know, broad emerging markets. They outperformed emerging markets ESG. They outperformed emerging markets ex-China. So it's not even just China. So that is, you know, some of the benefits of having that flexibility to pivot, you know, when your companies are free to act in, in their own and their shareholders' best interest. I'm, I'm just going to tell you a quick story. Um, <laughs> so when I was in Hong Kong, um, this was around the time when SMIC, SMIC, the Shanghai Manufacturing uh, or Semiconductor Manufacturing um, International in Shanghai was starting out. So they were just starting to be founded and, and they were a startup at the time. And this was 2003. So we actually knew the founder from Texas. He was from, I'm from Texas here in the US and, and he uh, worked at Texas Instruments with some members of my family. And so they tried to recruit me to go work for SMIC. And so I went to visit and, um, and I met with two department sales and basically government relations. <laughs> so this is where I learned that every company has a government relations department. And this is different from having that CCP cell in the company, which is more is a newer thing. But uh, at that time, even every company that operates in China has a government relations department and the person who works there is very similar to the type of person that you would have working in sales or PR. 
so this is something that I learned while I was there. Now, you know, they were trying to recruit me to work there. The the founder was, his name was Richard Jane, but the kids who I met with, and I call them kids because we were all like 20, 23 at the time. They told me, look, don't come here because of the IPO. Because at the time it was right before their first IPO. And all of my banker friends in Hong Kong were telling me, oh, this, this is going to pop. It's going to be, you know, tripled upon IPO. And so everybody wanted to, it's kind of a hot thing to be recruited by this company at that time. And so they, my, you know, the people that I met with, the, the young, uh, like 23 year olds who, who worked in, in this company at the time, and they were all expats from the United States. And they told me, Hey, don't come here because of the IPO come here because you feel called to be here. So these were kids who literally were there with a bigger purpose in mind of making China a better place. And, uh, and then fast forward to now, this company that Richard has been basically uh, run out of the company. He, he's no longer there. It is owned by basically the state. Um, all the officers and executives in the company are appointed by the state. They are, you know, they, they did not pop on their IPO. They were sued by um, Taiwan Semiconductor and lost the lawsuit for IP uh, theft. Um, they had a second IPO uh, on the starboard and did better there. Um, but they are still five or more years behind um, in their semiconductor technologies than a company like TSMC or Samsung. So, um, so you can see what happens when, I guess, a company has to answer to the state before all other shareholders or stakeholders is that it does not encourage innovation. Um, it pushes out people who were, are there for the right reasons. And, you know, it becomes like this arm of the state and, and just the, the efficiency level decreases. So that's kind of how it works, like a real life example. Um, as far as the how the, the person who's in each company that represents the CCP, what they do, that's unclear to me as well. I don't see a big purpose for that individual. I, and I think, you know, perhaps, and this is just, this is just my, my conjecture at this point, but perhaps it's, it's there for kind of purposes of making sure everyone stays in line. So, um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I don't see a big purpose for, for that individual. And I don't know exactly how it works uh, right now in the companies on the ground in China. Let's, let's talk about reforms for a second. Again, there's always a, you'd hope a pendulum swing from one extreme going, going the other. And, you know, Presumably, there are certain policies in certain countries that are becoming more free in, in the way that, that their economies operate, in the way that countries deal with their citizens. And I know this is kind of an odd question to, to ask, but is there some sort of um, sense of how long it takes for a country to become more free? And, and what do you do during that transition? Right, Because if you go with the argument that markets are a discounting mechanism, that stocks will respond to better economic reforms coming. You still need to see the reforms actually take place, but the stock markets of those countries may have already moved in advance of anybody really noticing. Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up. Thank you for that question. So so basically, um, what we've seen is that when freedom levels increase, that it happens very gradually. And if they increase due to revolution or some type of crisis, that the, the crisis does have a negative impact first before it has a positive impact. So increases happen gradually and sometimes are preceded by a crisis and decreases happen very quickly. We actually have a methodology rule called the freedom decline momentum rule to catch 
those very fast declines in freedom before you know it, it gets too bad. So the only country that's ever triggered that rule was Turkey in 2018 based on their 2017 freedom decline, and they've never made it back into the index since. So that's what we do to, to kind of as a stop stop loss mechanism to catch those very fast freedom declines. And like you said, some of these improvements in freedom, you know, maybe markets already capture them ahead of time. And what we found is that the market markets try to capture them ahead of time, but oftentimes fail. So it's as you know, as you know, it's difficult to predict the future, <laughs> as we know in markets. So, uh, so yes, and, and elections are a perfect example of this. Elections are notoriously very poorly um, captured by the markets, very poorly priced. So we often price it wrong. And that's what we've seen in countries where we expect a lot of freedom momentum uh, to the positive side. So one example of that is Argentina. If we included freedom positive momentum, which we don't, uh, like expected freedom momentum, we would have included Argentina a few years ago because there was huge expectation of positive momentum but it didn't happen. So so yeah, we we actually don't include any kind of expected freedom movement except for just the freedom decline momentum rule which catches the previous year uh decline. So so yeah, we we don't try to predict the future and, and we we you know, we just use the actual level of freedom at the time of measurement for for our metrics, but but yeah, that that's a good point and if if we could predict the future, I would absolutely use <laughs> expected you know, freedom momentum, but but we've taken the the position that we cannot predict that. Yeah, no, that's fair. It's it's it's, it's more just a question of sort of timing, right? Because I would assume that if a country is transitioning from less free to more free, that those equities would immediately respond in a faster way. And the you know, the, I would make this point: the biggest returns always come at the turn, right? It's it's tends to rarely be sort of in the middle of the trend. It's more when you have to take the leap of faith and, and catch the falling knife, right? Just from a compounding perspective. Okay, now, now I'm curious, uh, Perth, just from everything you've seen in the last, let's call it, decade or so, which emerging economies have improved the most in terms of freedom metrics, which have worsened uh, the most, right? Talk, talk about the extremes for a moment. Okay, so, I mean, there's a lot of, I guess, markets that have improved. So one is Taiwan um, from about 1990. Their, their freedom levels have shown stunning growth and likewise their stock market. So, so if you look at the last, you know, a couple of decades, their, their stock market has grown uh, or four, four times the, the rate of some of their neighboring markets. And, um, you know, their, their freedom levels have also grown and they've now become like the shining beacon of freedom in their, in their region. And that's what we see a lot of, um, Chile historically has been, similar in the Latin American, South America region. Of course, now we're expecting to see a, a pullback on that. So it comes in waves sometimes. And, you know, now we're seeing the, you know, other side of that wave. So, so yeah, I would say Taiwan is the one that comes to mind the most um, when you say countries that have improved. Turkey is one that comes to mind as one that has declined the most. And we see, we saw that accelerate over the past years as well. So, yeah, I mean, those are, I guess, the two I would think of, but if you look at uh, some of the borderline countries, I think are interesting as well. So you know the freedom increases and decreases are sometimes less subtle than than what, what I just mentioned there in Turkey and Taiwan. But you know, for example, in India, you know, India is the world's largest and oldest democracy, and I was very surprised to see it drop out of the index in 2021. 
it was in there in 19 and 20 and it it dropped out in 2021 it was because they had some um you know repression of their cashmere peoples which continued they coerced the media more than previous years in that year um and then they blacked out the internet in places that had protests. They had a lot of farmers protests that year. India always had a lot of protectionist policies as well, which caused them to have a little smaller allocation in our index uh, because of the, the trade policies, the tariffs and the non-tariff trade barriers. But that year, their personal freedom score caused them to, to actually leave the index. And so I think that's an, an interesting one to watch because they are very borderline and they could make it back in at any point. They did not make it back in in 2022, but they could make it back in at any point. Um, and I think, you know, some other borderline countries like Colombia is interesting to watch as well. Colombia is um, benefiting from the migration from Venezuela, just like Poland is benefiting from the migration from, from Ukraine right now. And this human capital in the long run can be a huge boon to these economies. So I think those are some interesting ones to watch. Yeah, very interesting. I think that may be a good place to to end the space. Please make sure you follow Perth, everybody. Yeah, it's good to get sort of an array of different subjects. And even though emerging markets have been atrocious, I think Perth's explanation has been exquisite. So thank you, everybody, for for joining and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Perth. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Cheers. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.